You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Adult Sunday School class. If you're wondering why I am up here instead of your regularly scheduled programming, it is because Kim Razor's mother passed away this last evening in the middle of the night or early this morning. So Cornell and the family went down to Coeur d'Alene to be with the family down there. So Cornell's not able to be here. And uh, Jess is, uh, would normally teach, and he's here. I don't know why he's not teaching, but apparently he's not prepared. So I'm winging a Q&A this morning. So if you have Q&A or questions for Q&A, this is your opportunity to ask them. It can be questions regarding theology, a biblical text, uh, quandaries of the Christian faith, um, some aspect of, of ministry, philosophy of ministry, uh, anything that is connected to our Christian life. This is your opportunity this morning. So we'll begin first with a word of prayer, and uh, we will pray for uh, Cornell and his family as well. So let me get some stuff started up here. All right. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we are thankful for this morning that we as your people can gather together here and to give you praise and glory for the work that you have done in our lives. We thank you for the, the comfort that you provide, the, the grace of knowing that our time is in your hands and we are, are grateful that we can trust and entrust everything about our lives, ourselves, our destiny to a Savior who is sufficient and able to keep all that we commit to him against that final day. And our hearts are saddened for Cornell and his family, and it is our desire that you would comfort them as Kim has lost her mother. We pray that you would comfort that family and that uh, this death at this time may serve in some way to glorify and honor you. We pray that you would give grace to Cornell and to Kim, uh, that they would have opportunities to share uh, Christ and salvation and the gospel with those family members and friends who may not know you. We pray that you would be honored through uh, this death and that you would remind your people again of the hope that we have in eternal life in Jesus Christ. Uh, be glorified, we pray, this morning in our time and our worship, our fellowship together with one another, and in this time of Sunday school, help us to think clearly about the things regarding your word and that are centered around your word, and we pray that you would be uh, glorified through our teaching and our time and our listening and our obedient hearts that we present to you. Be honored, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so I have a couple of pre-asked questions from Lanny that he submits to me before we get started. So are there any other questions? Anybody have a question before I jump into one of the landings? Yes, Dave. Can I explain covenant theology? Okay, so Lanny asked, 1 Timothy 4.10 says, so we're going to jump into Lanny's question first so that we have time for that afterwards, have time for Lanny's question. 1 Timothy 4.10, Paul writes this, for it, is for, this, for it is this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. And his question is, in what way is Christ the Savior of all men? Because obviously Paul would not have been a universalist and been saying that all men eventually will be saved, because not all men are saved. Some people are lost in eternal conscious torment. So what does Paul mean when he says that Christ is the Savior of all men, especially of believers? Okay, so in what sense then is Jesus Christ the Savior of all men? So if you're looking at the text and it's before you, you'll notice that Paul makes a distinction there, as he says, especially of believers. So he is distinguishing what Christ has done for those who believe against what Christ does for all men. 
But if he, if he is the savior of all men, let, let's assume for a second that this is universalism. It's not, but let's just assume that it is. Let's assume that Paul's saying that all people will be saved. Christ is the savior of all men and all will eventually be saved. All will go to heaven. None will go to hell. None will perish and none will cease to exist. If that's what Christ, if that's what Paul means, then what does he mean especially of believers? In what sense is he especially the savior of believers as opposed to unbelievers? So if you're a universalist, you still have to answer what Paul means by especially of believers. So here would be, I think, the short and simple answer to it. Um, there are two ways of understanding the passage that don't do any violence to the context. One of them is that Paul is simply saying here that Christ is the savior of all men. In other words, he is the savior that is provided for all men. So there is no other savior for, there's not a savior for Hindus and a savior for Muslims and a savior for Jews and a savior for something else and then a savior for us as Christians and believers. That Christ is the one single savior that is provided for all men. So if any man is going to be saved or any woman is going to be saved, they must come through Christ because he is the savior that is provided for all men. In that sense, he's the savior of all men. All men must come to him. There is salvation found in no other name. So then it would be an exclusive it would be an exclusive claim that Paul's making. And when he says, especially of believers, he's specifically speaking of something that Christ has done for believers. In other words, especially believers find in Christ that salvation, which is offered to all men. So even though we would say and believe that Christ, that the Father chose a people in eternity past and gave those people to the Son, and the Son came into the world to shed his blood and provide atonement for those people, and then he has promised to call those people to himself and to raise them up unto eternal life. Those are things which are done only for the elect. Even though we would affirm that, we would also say that that same message of salvation must be proclaimed and, and offered to all men freely and indiscriminately. Whether we believe them to be elect or not is irrelevant. We publish the gospel worldwide to as many people as we possibly can, since we don't know who the elect are. But in that salvation, which is offered to all men, Christ has done something specific, particular, and individual for those who are his. And that is that he has actually applied the salvation that is offered to all men. He has applied it specifically to his elect. Does that make sense? Okay, so there's another se a second sense in which the verse can be understood that when Paul says that, uh, that Christ is the Savior of all men, he is essentially saying what Spurgeon, uh, let, me, let me say how Spurgeon would have said this. Spurgeon said, I believe that in the death of Christ, God did some things for all men and all things for some men. That is, that the death of Christ provides some things for all men and all things for some men. So that is to say that in the death of Christ, he does certain things for even those who are not his elect. Um, the unbeliever who even dies in his unbelief is granted a lot of graces by God that he does not deserve. Uh, a stay from temporal punishment, right? He, he gets to enjoy things that we refer to as common grace. He gets to taste good food and see good sunsets and hear beautiful music and enjoy the delights of family and friends and marriage and all of those things. An unbeliever who even dies in his impenitence enjoys all of those things. So I would say, and I have no problem saying this, that I agree with Spurgeon, that in the death of Christ, God provided some things for all men. All of those graces that come to even the non-elect are purchased by them and for them in the death of Christ. God, God can be gracious to no one on the basis of just what that individual has done. He does it on the basis of what Christ has done. So God's grace, God's justice is satisfied in Christ only for his elect but also in the death of Christ, God is gracious to those who are not his elect. So he is in that sense, saves all men. There is a, a salvation, a deliverance, a, 
a grace that is extended to all men through the death of Christ, but there is something that Christ has done for believers and only believers. So he is the Savior of all men, but especially of believers, he's done something for us which he has not done for all men. He has actually paid the, the price for our sin debt and laid our sin upon his son and given us a righteousness that his son purchased on our behalf. That is what he has done especially for believers. Okay, that makes sense? So I think there's two ways of, those are the two typical ways that that verse has been understood uh, in light of its context. Any questions about that? Okay, on to the second one. Nobody wants to ask a question of that, about that because everybody wants to hear the answer to Dave's question, which have we all forgot it by now? What can I explain covenant theology? Now, I am not, I, I don't, do not subscribe myself to covenant theology, but covenant theology is not a heresy. Um, it, covenant theology is within orthodoxy. So there are within evangelical Christians two sort of basic ways of understanding God's dealings with men as expressed and explained in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So one way to understand that is that, and I'm going to give you, I'm going to paint in very broad strokes because there are people that are covenant theologians who would say, no, I don't, I don't agree with that. And no matter what I say, there are going to be people who would say, take exception to some of this. So I'm going to speak in very general terms. Just like, as there are dispensationalists who believe, believe certain things that I would never subscribe to. There are an, probably a vast majority of dispensationalists in America believe you can lose your salvation. I'm a dispensationalist, but I don't buy that. So somebody got up to explain what dispensationalism is, and they said, well, they believe that we're taking back territory from Satan, and that we're binding Satan and casting out demons, and that we are, you can lose your salvation, and that uh, God's offer of salvation depends upon your free will choice to accept it. If that's how you characterize dispensationalism, I would say, no, I'm not a dispensationalist. But when it comes to God's view of how he works with men and what is to take place in the future, I would be a dispensationalist. In terms of salvation, I would be more... Um, I would find more at home in, with covenant theologians than I do with dispensationalists. Okay, all of that's just to lay the groundwork, so here are basically the two kind of camps. A covenant theologian would say that God made a covenant with Adam in the garden, which covenant looked forward to and anticipated everything that God would do in dealing with men throughout all of history. And that in that one covenant with mankind, and, and some, no, I should say this, a lot of theologians would back up even before the garden and say there was a covenant that was made between the members of the Trinity, that the Father promised the Son certain things, the Son promised the Father certain things, the Holy Spirit was involved in those promises. That's called the eternal covenant, that God made that covenant amongst the three persons, and then he created, and that everything flows out of that. It's expressed then in a covenant that's made with Adam. Um, that covenant that is made with Adam is later sort of expanded and added to and... and, uh, and developed with Noah, and then after Noah, Abraham, and then after Abraham, David, and then after David in the New Covenant. And so that all of these various covenants that are made throughout the course of human history and God's dealing with men, all of them spring from and originate from that one covenant that was made in the Trinity before time began. So one covenant. A dispensationalist would say that God's dealing with men God deals with different men at different times. Some dispensationalists would say there have been seven dispensations throughout human history. I don't, I don't, I don't subscribe to that necessarily. I think that there are at least two. I think that God has dealt with the nation of Israel in a way that he is not dealing with the church, and he is dealing with the church in a way that he is not dealing with the nation of Israel. So I, I think that God is free to deal with different people groups in different ways, however he might sovereignly determine. So I, I am at least in that sense, I think, what John MacArthur would call a leaky dispensationalist. 
Can you nail me down and say there are X number of dispensations and it starts at this point and ends at this point? I wouldn't subscribe to any of that. But I do at least say, have to acknowledge that God deals with Israel in a way that different way he has dealt with the church. I do believe that there are two different people groups. So a covenant theologian would say that there's one people group. It's the people of God. In the Old Testament, they were called the nation of Israel. And you will read certain Puritans and covenant theologians who will refer to Old Testament Israel as the Old Testament church. And then in the New Testament, we are the New Testament Israel. So this people of God has been the same body, the same group of people. It had an ethnic identity in the past. Today it doesn't have an ethnic identity, but it's one homogenous group of people whom God has saved that we would call the elect. As a dispensationalist, I would say God dealt with the nation of Israel in a certain way to prepare for the new covenant. We are grafted in, and God is working as part of that old covenant, something that is new that is attached in a way to what God did in the old covenant that comes from us. But there is a separate people, group of people called the church. There's, there's nowhere in the Old Testament where Israel is referred to as the church, and there's nowhere in the New Testament where we, the church, Gentiles, are referred to as the nation of Israel. So there has to be those two separate and distinct people groups. So in that way, I would be a dispensationalist. In terms of what God is doing in the future, most covenant theologians would say that God has no plan for the national state of Israel, that his plan for them has been superseded and replaced by the church. So now all of the all of the promises made to the national Israel are going to be fulfilled spiritually in the church. So there is no more earthly kingdom to anticipate, as described uh, that we're going to be looking at today, actually in, in the message today. There's no earthly kingdom to be anticipated anymore. That has been put done away with. The church has replaced that. Christ's rule is in the heavens is a spiritual rule, not a physical rule, and there is no physical rule or physical kingdom to come. As a dispensationalist, I don't believe that. I believe that there is a plan for the people of God known as the church. We're the bride of Christ. That's not national Israel. God will again at some point pick up his plan and his workings, dealings with the nation of Israel. And he has two separate people groups, as it were, identifiable, but all saved by grace, all elect, of course, and saved by grace through the death of Christ. So we share that in common, though we distinguish between these people groups. And that God still has a plan for national Israel. And that plan includes a physical, literal reign and kingdom on this earth to fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies. I think that covers everything. Okay, so what is covenant theology? It is a theology that really sees all of God's dealings handled through one covenant. Um, because that is the case, if you start with that premise, then I think you are forced to conclude that um, God has no dealings with national Israel because if it's the same people group, then you can't make a distinction between those two people groups so that you are forced to be either an amillennialist or a postmillennialist, which again, those are not heresies, okay? Uh, R.C. Sproul was an amillennialist. I love the man, saved, born again. I have no doubts about that at all because um, none of these issues that we're talking about now are issues of heresy. It really boils down to, I think, the presuppositions with which we come to Scripture. You come to Scripture with certain presuppositions, and if those presuppositions are in place, then it's going to lead you to certain conclusions. And our eschatology, I think, is among the conclusions that result from certain presuppositions that we bring to the to viewing Scripture. Any questions about that? How would I handle Messianic Jews or the 144,000? Uh, I think you have to distinguish between those those two um, because you, today, today I would not say that the 144,000 exists today or will exist while we're on this earth. Because that is a uniquely tribulational event. Um, so that's the 144,000. How do we handle Messianic Jews? Messianic Jews are people who have an ethnicity that 
they're not they're not saved by. In, uh, let me back up. Jews today are not saved in any way different than we are. They're not saved because of their ethnicity. So the fact that they happen to be Jews and come to Christ today, their Jewishness in terms of the relationship to the Messiah today is irrelevant. Because they don't, they don't get any special thing because of their ethnicity. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2 that God has broken down that middle wall of partition between Jews and Gentiles, so now there is one new man. It is the church. So the whole idea of a Messianic Jewish movement, to, to me, I think, is an attack against the gospel. Because it, and not that it's a heresy, but it undermines a central tenet of the gospel. And that is that, that in, because of what Christ has done today, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, inside the church. And, and, and as Paul, is, Paul says that, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, inside the church, he is simply describing that these, these things which were barriers and distinctions in terms of salvation, in terms of how God dealt with people, these things don't exist within the church. So if you come to me and you say, well, I'm a, I'm a Jew who has believed upon my Messiah, I'm a Messianic Jew, I would say you're a Christian. There's no, there's no Messianic Jew, Christian, right? Gentile Christian, Jewish Christian. These are terms that should have no bearing and, and no presence within Christianity today. Now, if you want to talk about what God is going to do in the future, then we can talk about an ethnic Israel. Because there's still a kingdom that has to be established. There's still promises that God has made to David and to his descendants and to, to Abraham and to those patriarchs that must be fulfilled, I believe. So the question is, didn't the promises come with conditions that they had broken? Some of the promises came with conditions that they had broken. But even after they had broken those conditions in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 9, I'll read it because I had bookmarked it for the, today, actually. In Isaiah chapter 9, when he says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. We're familiar with that passage. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness then on, and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So there are, there are elements of the old covenant which were conditional. right? Obey me and you'll stay in the land. Disobey me and I will kick you out. But there are also elements of the Old Testament covenant which were not conditional, where God just simply said, I'm going to do this. And the nation disobeyed him. And that's Isaiah is writing to a nation in full-fledged rebellion and idolatry. They're sacrificing children of Moloch. They have cast aside the covenant. They have not kept any of the feasts or the Passovers. For years they had neglected all of those things. They had violated and failed the covenant. And yet God says, this is the promise, I'm going to do this. And people in Isaiah's day would have said, well, how is this going to happen? I mean, we have, we have cast aside God. We, there's almost nothing left of the Davidic line. And yet God's answer was, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That's an unconditional, I believe the kingdom is an unconditional promise. Because I don't know of any place in Scripture where the, the kingdom is conditioned upon the obedience or worthiness of the nation of Israel. There are certain elements of the Old Testament covenant that were conditioned upon their obedience. God's blessing he blessed them when they were obedient. He cursed them when they were disobedient. That's why they, they read the blessings and the cursings when they came out of the land on, on Mount Ebal in the land uh, uh, north where Samaria is at. They re read the blessings and the cursings back and forth in affirming this covenant. But those promises where God said, I'm going to do this and this will, this will not fail, those promises are unconditional. Uh, like I, re I would encourage you to read Psalm 89 where God says, and I'm, this is in the message today too. You stop, Dave. Don't ask me uh, questions regarding the message. So in Psalm 89, God promises that he is going to do this. And he says, once I've sworn to David, I, I will not lie to David. This is what I'm going to do. As the sun and the moon are faithful, witnesses in the sky, this, this will happen and the earth will not pass away until I have fulfilled this. And these are always treated as unconditional promises.
Uh, any other, is, that, is this related to this question? Okay, go ahead. How would a covenant theologian explain Romans 9 through 11 since it's pretty clear that there is a future for national Israel? I don't know how they would explain that. I read Romans 9 through 11, and to me it's very clear and it's very straightforward that we are grafted in, that God has not set aside his promises. His promises to them are not conditional, and he will fulfill them. I don't know. It has been ages since I have read like R.C. Sproul on Romans 9 to 11, and I don't know that I have studied what a how a covenant theologian would answer that. So I, I have to say I don't know. I can't speak to that at least not confidently, that I want to have recorded and put out in front of everybody. All right, any other questions about covenant theology before we move on? No? Okay. Um, Lanny's other question, are there any other questions before I deal with Lanny's second pre-asked question? All right. First Chronicles 29, 29 references the book of Nathan and the book of Gad. Do we have them? That was the question. And the answer to that is no, not to my knowledge. We don't have them. So there are, this is not just something we find in the Old Testament. It's something that is in the New Testament as well. I think it's in the book of Jude. Uh, I think it's Jude where he, they mention the book of Enoch. And this is a, this is an, a book that was in circulation or at least well known at the time that Jude wrote his epistle. And he references something. Um, and the thing to keep in, he references something in that book, and the thing to keep in mind is that when inspired writers mention other books, they're not necessarily speaking of them in terms of their inspiration. So, for instance, Jude doesn't say, um, as Scripture says, and then quote the book of Enoch. He just says, he just refers to something that was in the book of Enoch, much like I today might refer to something that somebody else has written on another subject. Um, Paul references the, the prophets in Acts chapter 17 and his, his sermon on Mars Hill. He quotes some of the pagan prophets. He's not lending credibility or inspiration to those pagan prophets. He's simply quoting something that people were familiar with. It was part of the vernacular of the day. So in the same way, the book of, of Nathan and the book of Gad are, are books that whoever wrote Second Chronicles and First Chronicles, um, he was simply referring to those books because they were probably historical books or had information that he felt reliable in some way that he could refer people to. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they're quoting them as inspired scripture. So as far as I know, those books, like the book of Enoch, have been lost to history. We don't have them anymore. They could be found, yeah. One thing that we have to keep in mind regarding books of antiquity, um, and even, even books that circulated around the time of the writings of the New Testament, it was very rare to have a book last a long, long time. Um, books from antiquity are, are rare compared to the amount of writing that went on. We have Homer's Iliad and we have uh, uh, books from the first century and of course the New Testament and things that predate the writing of the New Testament. But it was very common for books to be destroyed. They were easily destroyed having, having writing materials that lasted a long time where books could be preserved. That was a rarity. It was, it was very unheard of for books to be preserved. The reason that our New Testament books were, are preserved so well and so prolifically is because the early Christians regarded them as scripture. So they copied them prolifically and circulated them prolifically and stored them and treasured them and kept them and preserved them and guarded them with their lives. But books that people just thought were just books, they just they were lost, a history book. They, they didn't view history and writings from history the same way that we do today, unfortunately, because if they did, then a lot of that stuff would be preserved, but it hasn't been. All right, any other questions? Okay, another question. We get out 15 minutes early. It's your choice. Jess. Yeah, Jess asked if I could 
speak to the, the seeming paradoxes that Paul gives in Galatians 2, verse 20, which many of you could probably list this, uh, re re recite this from memory. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for it is righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. And so, uh, just said, if you have a gap, could you please talk about the, the paradoxes that are listed there? And, and you can kind of see them. Uh, just said there were three of them. Let me see if I can see them here. I've been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So maybe the first paradox is, I don't live, Christ lives in me. And yet, Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's the second paradox. Is there a third one, Jess? Okay, I've been crucified with Christ being the first. Yeah, okay. So, I've been crucified with Christ. Yeah, seeming paradox. And then, I have, I don't, uh, I don't live... Christ does. He lives through me, and yet I live. And I think that um, this, this passage is meaningful for us, I think, because it illustrates for us the complexity of what it means to walk with Christ and also a simplicity of what it means to walk with Christ. There, there, is, there is for us as Christians this realization that in Christ I died. In his crucifixion was my crucifixion. So I am a dead man. And if you believed upon Jesus Christ, then you really should think of yourself as a dead man. And therefore, have, but you really are not, have not died physically, you've only died spiritually. Or you, sh you could say that your old self, your, your identity in Adam has been crucified with Christ. So you, the old you that was true before you came to faith in Christ no longer exists. And yet, though you have died, here you are still alive. Because we have been raised to newness of life. So there is this death-life paradox that we live with and deal with as Christians that, in some sense, I'm dead. That who I was in Adam is dead and it is gone, and it will never be resurrected. I have been made something new in Christ, a new creation. Not a resurrection of an old creation in terms of my identity or my, my, uh, my person, but a, a new creation entirely. God has made something new in saving us. And so we're dead but alive, and then, but then we have to recognize too that in my pursuit of my sanctification, I'm not the one living, Christ is living in me. And Paul describes this in Philippians 2 uh, that just talked about some weeks ago when he said... Um, uh, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So in my sanctification, we have to do the work, and yet we have to understand and know that it's God who's doing the work in us. So dead men don't work. At least in all the dead men that I've seen, none of them are working. So dead men don't work, and yet I work for my salvation. So I'm not alive, I'm not living, but Christ is living in me, but yet I am still living. It is still me, Jim Osman. I'm saying these words, I'm responsible for this, I'm making decisions, I'm doing these things, but it's the new me, and the life that I am living, I am doing the living, Christ is actually living through me. And that, that, there's a mystery there that I think, don't think that we as believers will ever fully comprehend. So there, there's nothing about my, you know, the day before I got saved, I still, I, I had my mother and my sister and all my relations and, and all of my possessions and everything. The day after I got saved, none of that changed, but I radic had radically changed. So that old me was dead, and yet, in many ways, to the outward appearance, it was the same me that was alive as the day before that. But this new me, it's not me living, it's Christ living in me. So that eternal life, that, that, that thing which energizes my new heart, my new affections, it is all Christ. But that doesn't eliminate my responsibility to live. It doesn't eliminate my responsibility to work my tail off to be sanctified. 
because I find, I find it odd that I, there's nothing about my progression in holiness that I can take credit for because God does all of that and yet he doesn't do any of it without me. So I have to do all of that. I have to get up. I have to read my Bible. I have to pray. I have to pursue holiness. I have to mortify sin. I do the preaching. Uh, I teach. I study. I do all of these things. I get exhausted by those things. God doesn't get worn out by any of my efforts, and yet my efforts are as necessary as his grace to it. He's doing that work, but he does it through me. Um, it's kind of, I was watching, um, this is just on sort of a humorous aside. I was watching Shenandoah, the old Jimmy Stewart movie about that took place during the Civil War. If you've never seen it, I would commend it to you. There's a scene at the beginning when he's gathered with his family there at their farmhouse, and he bows his head to pray, and he prays something like this, Lord, we, we bought this land, we worked this land, we cleared this land, we planted the seed, we harvested it, we cooked this food. Without us working our fingers to the bone, none of this would be before us today, but we're going to thank you for it anyway. Amen. And so there's, and it was kind of, it was humorous because he was acknowledging, I thought, these two things. And this kind of calls to my mind that. There is a sense in which the product of my holiness entirely depends upon me and entirely depends upon the work of God in me. Those two things have to go together. I can't sit back like a pietist and say, I'm just going to let go and let God, and I'll be sanctified, and I'm just going to grow in holiness, and I'm not going to do anything. Um, I can't do that, and yet I can't work and strive as if it all depends on me. Um, I work and strive as if it all depends on me because I'm working toward that goal, but I know that it doesn't all depend on me. In fact, none, none of it depends on my work, but all of it depends on my work. Like how you work that out is a mystery to me. God, all of Scripture was written by men, and all of Scripture was written by God. Right? God is 100%, God is 100% sovereign, and men are 100% responsible. So these paradoxes exist in every area of our theology. And it's okay to be comfortable with it. So your sanctification and your Christian life, you should work as if it all depends upon you and trust and pray and rely upon God as if it all depends upon Him. And I think if we're able to walk that fine line, um, we're doing what Scripture calls us to do, to, to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. That's our command. Knowing that it is God who is at work in us to do what He has determined for His good pleasure. He gives us the power to do it. Yet we get exhausted from doing it. All right, any other questions? Yeah, Carol. You couldn't have asked this five minutes ago when I was looking for questions? No. Okay. Okay, go ahead. So Christians who believe that it's their job to work out their own salvation and to and how is it that they can be Christians and think that? Um, Christians can believe a lot of bad and wrong things. And... I think that's one of the bad, wrong things that sometimes as Christians we can believe. Um, whether that touches on the gospel and whether somebody is saved or not, I think you have to go beyond just some bad theology on the surface to get to the heart of that issue. If that person is saying, look, my salvation depends on what I do in this life to maintain my standing before God, if that's what they're saying by that statement, then I think you have a gospel issue. You have a heart issue is dealing with their understanding of the gospel and justification and what they think is earning them righteousness, how righteousness comes to us. But um, there are just simply Christians who don't understand the work of God in their not only their sanctification, but also their preservation for heaven. Right? We are kept by the power of God, First Peter 1 says. We're kept by the power of God for this salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So it is God who keeps us, 
And yet, as we're going to see as we work our way through the book of Hebrews, there's a sense in which all of these other things, our mortification of sin, our pursuit of holiness, our obedience, our, the warning passages of Hebrews, they all serve as these, these guards to keep us in this grace. And those are the means by which God keeps us in the grace. And, and my efforts of salvation, my efforts at sanctification and pursuing holiness and believing and maintaining that belief, those are things that God uses as a means to that end. But ultimately, he's the one that preserves us. So am I preserved from apostasy by something that I do? Well, yeah, in a sense. I mean, not believing apostasy and not believing false doctrine is one thing that I don't do. And maintaining orthodoxy and walking with the Lord and standing true on his word, those are things that I do that preserve me in orthodoxy. But at the same time, I understand God is the one who preserves me in orthodoxy. I went to Bible college with a lot of people who, who ended up have ended up walking away from the faith, and I would no, I would no longer I would no longer even consider many of them Christians, the ones I'm thinking about, um, and I would be I would be very concerned for the, some of their salvation. So who who failed to keep them in the faith? Well, I don't believe for one moment that they, if they are unsaved today that they were ever saved to begin with. So I don't believe that God by His grace, was keeping them in the same way that He is preserving and keeping me. I believe that they made a profession of faith and then they fell away. And what they did is the evidence of that falling away. Now, for me, God's commands to me and my obedience to those commands and my working out my own salvation with fear and trembling are the means that God uses to do that preserving and protecting work. So these two things go together in keeping me. And an individual who says, well, I'm being kept by the things that I do, then I would want to sit down with that person and say, Why do you, where do you think righteousness comes from? How righteous are you today? And on what basis do you think you are righteous and can stand before God? Because then you want to get down to whether this is a gospel issue or whether they've just been taught by some very uh, well-meaning but uninformed Arminians that everything about their salvation depends upon them. And there are Christians who, who can be saved and simply be uninformed about how the Christian life should be lived. And they need to be matured. Right. They're, yeah. These people go to charismatic churches. So that could be part of the issue, Carol said. And it most certainly can because that's not, that's not sound doctrine or theology that they're getting there. Jess? Right. Right. It, it, at the heart, you have to get to, this is what I was saying, you have to get to the issue of whether or not they're understanding how they're made righteous. Is it imputed or infused righteousness or grace? All right. Any other questions? I think our time is up. So let's close with a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you that you do do the work in, in our life of preserving us and keeping us by your grace and for your glory. We thank you that our salvation is entirely of you, that you are the one who in eternity past loved us and chose us. And then in time, you called us to yourself and then applied the work of the Holy Spirit to our hearts and to our minds, opening our eyes and our hearts so that we might behold the gospel and behold Christ these things are precious to us, and we have you to thank and you to glorify for these things. They are your work, and we thank you. We thank you that now you work to continue to preserve us and to protect us and to keep us by your power for that salvation, which we will fully embrace at the end of time. We thank you that we are righteous even today because of what Christ has done. So help us, we pray, to embrace these things, to trust them, and to make them the ground of our efforts at sanctification and pursuing holiness, knowing that these efforts are never in vain. We thank you for these in, in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. 
If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.